Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber, rested and relaxed after a week-long vacation in South Carolina to visit my brother and his wife uh, at their new home. It was a lovely time, and I tell you, it was nice to see green coming from winter uh, of Colorado and then going to, it's amazing that in about three hours, you fly from one place to another, and you can completely see a whole new reality, if you will. Um, I was a little disappointed that the mask mandate was extended, but as I talked about in the last episode... It was totally predicted. Um, as I played the soundbite from Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, uh, yeah, he, he kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't really answer the question that was posed to him about whether the mandate was going to be extended. And yes, it was extended for another month. And the people around the airport weren't too happy about it. And there were a handful, a small handful of people inside the airport that didn't wear their masks on the airplane. I saw a lot of people just pulling it down to their mouth and letting their nose open. Um, and there wasn't anybody that just blatantly had it off. There were people obviously taking it off for a little bit so they could have their uh, drink, of, you know, their sodas or uh, their snacks and that sort of thing. But uh, it really wasn't crazy. Um, and it was really interesting, the experience that we had to go through TSA PreCheck. It was the first time got to go through TSA PreCheck. And let me tell you, it was wonderful. I'm telling you, it was way better because you didn't have to take your shoes off, didn't have to take anything out of your bag. So I didn't have to take my snacks out of the bag and the laptop out of the bag and take my, I mean, I didn't have to take a a half undress and put it in these bins to then shove it through the x-ray machine. I could just have everything with me, basically just put it all in my backpack have it all in the one bag, send it through. Now, I, they did stop me and say, do you have any metal on you? I said, well, just my belt. They made me take my belt off, and um, it was my belt that set off the x-ray machine. Uh, but that was it. And then coming through uh, uh, Savannah, uh, it was just as easy. There was no one in that TSA uh, pre-check security line. We walked right up to the front, went right through security within minutes. It was so easy. Um, I can't tell you how great. I mean, on, yes, honestly, there are some credit cards that will pay for your TSA pre-check $85 fee. But even if they don't, the $85 for the five-year pre-check is worth it. Now, there are a lot of people that are doing the pre-check because uh, I did see quite a few people in Denver going through the pre-check line. And so it was a little bit uh, not as busy as it would be in a normal TSA line. But I'm telling you, it was way better than the, than the regular line. That is 100% for sure. Uh, so on the show today, we're going to be speaking of all things transportation with AAA expert uh, Skylar McKinley. I, I have loads of topics for him today, and I, in, 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 I'm just going to call him here in just a minute. Uh, but first, I wanted to share this tone-deaf email with you. I, I received this email while I was away, and it's, well... I want, I want you to decide if you think it's tone deaf or not. Here's how it starts off. It starts off saying, Public transit usage has decreased significantly in Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24th. Y- y- you think? Goodness. <laughs> you mean Russia invaded Ukraine, blew up all their buildings and infrastructure, sent tanks rolling down their roads, and there's been fewer people on a bus? No! <laughs> Say it isn't so! 
That's stunning news. Stunning, I tell you. The email continues. While public transit continues to run, there are no services available when curfews are in place. For example, 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. in Kiev. How is the transit running when there isn't anyone to operate the trains or the buses on a regular schedule? And where are the people going? To the office? Nobody's working as a regular office job in Ukraine right now. They're fighting for their lives. This email sent to me the other week continues. Move it, an Intel company and creator of the popular urban mobility app, is sharing this visual to show the percentage of change in demand for public transit in several of Ukraine's major cities. The data is based on the daily active use of Move It users. If you're interested in using this in an article, please provide credit to moveit.com. Uh, firstly, no, uh, that would be no. I am not interested in using this information in any sort of way, in any kind of article or on TV. Nope. Uh, I would e- be uh, even more tone deaf uh, if if I used it uh, more so than than even these people are. Uh, Move it, <laughs> by the way, set this graphic that shows just a line basically going down from zero to minus seventy percent in transit use for several cities in Ukraine. Uh, it's the most duh graphic there could ever be for this kind of a situation. So is it just me? Or is this just totally tone deaf? I mean, seriously, if you're concerned about the transit use going down in a place where the major issue is staying alive, what's wrong with you? Well, I mean, and then I was thinking, all right, there has to be some other motivation, a real reason behind this air quotes, because that's all it deserves, news release. I mean, do you really think that they're saying that maybe it's a climate change thing brought on by commuting, and that is more of a problem than having your home apartment building blown up, having all your friends and loved ones escape with their lives to another country because your homeland is being invaded? I, I, I think it is trying to say that the war is bad for the environment because fewer people are using transit. War is bad for the environment. Let me write that down. Yeah, I think war is bad for the environment. It's also bad for the people who are trying to stay alive. Also, fewer people are working because they're fighting for their lives and their land. And they're escaping the country. And who is getting a regular paycheck for driving a bus right now in Ukraine? No one, because they're all on the front lines trying to stay alive and defend their land and their families. I, I, I was so befuddled by this email. I almost replied back to them, but I didn't want to get into it with, with uh, Move It. So if you want to, I can. I, maybe I should do I'll post it here to the uh, description of this show so you can see it. If I can find it in my thousands of emails, I'll, I'll post it there on, on the thing. So if you want to, if you want to contact Move It about it, It'll be there. Okay, I haven't talked to my buddy Skylar McKinley from AAA Colorado in a while, and I have a stack of interesting transportation uh, news items that it's coming out of his office, like gas prices, oil prices, summer travel, road trips, and a very interesting story about the increase in fatal wrecks, even though fewer people have been driving 
since the start of COVID. So to talk about all of this and probably much, much more is the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA here in Colorado, Skylar McKinley. Skylar, thanks again for being here on the World Famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks. There's a lot driving me crazy lately. Uh, gas prices cheap among them, but also crash risk. Uh, I mean, it is an interesting time in transportation, to be sure. By the way... This is your fourth appearance on the program, so that means you are one away from the illustrious Five Timers Club. Congratulations. Thanks. Do I get a lanyard or something? <laughs> you might, uh, if I yeah. can make something up that, yeah, it would be. <laughs> you've been on episode 118, 178, and 195, and here on, uh, what episode is this? 237. Wow, time flies. You're not kidding. Uh, so there are several topics we want to cover. So let's start with the obvious, oil and gasoline. So when oil is high, it obviously it affects the price of gasoline for us drivers and the price of diesel fuel for the truckers, and it affects the prices of all other products that are made from petroleum, a lot of plastics and other items. And We've been up, and then we've been a bit down and up again. So uh, overall, where are we going with oil? So the name of the game for crude oil in 2022 is going to be volatility. Obviously, there's a very volatile situation with Russia, which is uh, one of the world's top producers of crude oil, accounting for 10 to 15 percent of global crude. Uh, as that situation continues to develop, we're going to see a lot of back and forth when it comes to crude oil prices. So a couple of weeks ago, everybody was talking about crude oil hitting highs, gas prices hitting record highs. The price of crude was around $120, $125 per barrel, which was, you know, a $30 to $40 jump. Uh, then briefly, prices fell. Prices fell to around $100 per barrel, um, which is why we've seen gas prices sort of even out and start to fall. The bad news is this week it looks like crude oil is rising again. When I last checked a couple minutes ago, it was at $115 per barrel. So knowing that the price of crude oil affects uh, about 50% of the pump price when it comes to filling up your car... Um, I think that we can look to a very volatile year with the general trend being upward and being very expensive and setting records uh, and close to setting records when it comes to adjustments for inflation. So uh, prices on everything will be more expensive as a function of gas being involved in shipping goods and services. And, you know, I think people are confused with how the oil markets work. And, and where we get our gasoline and from what oil. There, there are a couple of grades of oil. There's heavy oil and there's light oil. That's why you see that it reflected in the stock market prior, the commodities prices. And we produce here in the United States a lot of light oil. But we need the heavier oil for the production of gasoline. That's why we are exporting a lot of our lighter oil and importing a lot of our heavy oil. And, and that's how it can really change the dynamic of of what you're paying at the pump because we're reliant on that heavier oil from other parts of the world, not just here in the United States. That's an important point, too, is that we're part of a global oil marketplace and that U.S. producers will sell their oil for the best price and where it can be used most efficiently. Um, generally, our refineries in America are not set up to use light crude, which, as you mentioned, is what we produce here at home. So we will always have to import, even if, if uh, stateside production starts to increase, which we're seeing, um, that's going to go to the export market. It'll be part of that global marketplace, so it will eventually drive prices down. But our system isn't set up to use the oil we drill at home at home because that would be inefficient on cost for the producers who can get more for it somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, because it's a global marketplace... What happens in Kiev affects what folks pay in Kansas City, and that will almost always be the case because that's the most efficient market operation. Um, of course, when we have something like a bad hurricane season 
or a conflict in Europe, as we're seeing, uh, that's when we get these price spikes. So I think the good news and bad news, the spikes have settled down for now for consumers. So we're not going to see a week to week increase of 50 to 75 cents. Um, but prices will continue to climb in 2022 because we're, we're talking about supply when we talk about crude oil. But demand is about to go up as we enter the spring and summer driving season. Uh, and that, of course, puts pressures on prices as well. Yeah, and it, it also puts pressure on prices when we have to change over to the summer blends. And people don't really understand what that really means and how it, it, the gasoline uh, mixture has changed for the summer compared to the winter because of the uh, the temperatures, uh, uh, you know, ar- around the country to make it less pollutant. So uh, explain that to the folks. Yeah, so summer blend gas has uh, less energy in it, basically, uh, to prevent excessive evaporation when it gets hot out. This way, gas doesn't just become vapor and go into our environment uh, and so on. It also stays in your gas tank. Uh, it's just more expensive to produce. Um, and generally, we are required to switch over production May 1st. It usually, by May 15th, has hit gas stations. And consumers can expect uh, around 15 cents or more increase in the cost of gas just when we switch over to summer blend. Uh, it has slightly more energy in it, about 2% more energy, meaning it can give you a little bit better fuel economy, but not to the degree that prices are going up. So automatically, in a couple weeks, couple months, we're going to be switching over to summer blend. A lot of folks are already beginning to switch over. Uh, that's going to add add costs. At the same time, hey, people are going on road trips. People are buying airfare. Uh, COVID restrictions are lifting. And because we're competing for crude oil, for petroleum, for cars, as well as for jet fuel, for planes, as well as whatever it is that cruise ships run on, uh, generally all of those are going to send prices up too. But I certainly expect a 15-cent jump uh, when we make the switch over in May. And that's not the only fluctuation we see in the oil prices, as I'm speaking to Skylar McKinley, Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA here in Colorado. You can see the difference in gasoline prices between Texas and California because of different regulations in those states. And so while everybody in California goes, what is going on? Our prices are still at $6, even though the oil prices are dropping down a bit. We're still paying out through the nose. While in Texas or Louisiana, where you're closer to the refineries, different regulations, they're not going to be paying as much. That's true. And I think the best way to think about this is gas prices rise like a rocket and fall like a feather just based off how the gas gets into the system. So we're still paying for the gas that was bought at the really steep prices a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, We will see prices fall a little bit here in Colorado. Uh, Certainly, you're right. California has a high gas tax, which is factored in. That's why California is at around 585 per gallon versus Texas, which is close to the refineries, 389. In Colorado, we're at about $3.97. We have unique fuel here, too. I think you and I might have talked about this before. In the Rocky Mountain West, Our regular grade gasoline is a lower octane than what it is in most of the rest of the country due to our high altitude. Um, And so because we're buying 85 octane, the rest of the country's base tends to be 87, which is our mid-grade. We also see some savings there. So uh, that is some bright news for folks who are staying in Colorado. But the problem is uh, when it becomes road trip season, Coloradans drive to Colorado, of course, but they also drive to California and to Texas and elsewhere. Uh, Again, it's, it's a global and a national marketplace. Uh, I think in Colorado, the good news is we just barely missed that $4 threshold when we had the crazy spikes a few weeks ago. Um, but I would say when we're into summer with summer blend, uh, we'll probably have an average north of $4 for some periods at least. 
And, and you mentioned how Colorado drivers can maybe uh, change their their habits. I think it's that way for the entire country as well, because where where there's always talk about the high gas prices, there's also talk that people will start to change their habits, whether they're going to get on a bike or go walking or try to look for a fuel efficient or even an electric car. Is, is it too early to know right now if people have been changing their habits uh, based on the prices that we've seen over the last couple of weeks and months? So Coloradans have told us in survey data, including a, a survey we fielded just a few weeks ago, hey, what price do you begin to think differently about gasoline? And I would say at $3.75, folks think about gas. Prior to that, they fill up and they might grumble a little bit. But at three seventy-five, they say, hey, I'm going to carpool. I'm going to combine errands. Uh, you have a majority of Coloradans at 375 in the 60% range say, yeah, I'm going to make some slight behavioral adjustments. When gas hits $4, that's a real big psychological line in the sand. Then you get something like 87% of Coloradans adjust their habits to save money. What's interesting is that there's two types of habits that change. Um, they might try to drive less in their day-to-day -day life, uh, including carpooling or perhaps asking your, your son or daughter to take the bus home from school or to carpool with others. Uh, folks will combine errands. They'll be m more strategic in how they get around. But they don't adjust their leisure behavior in the same way because I think Americans see vacation as a right. So when it comes to, like, summer driving uh, – do folks take a shorter road trip because of high gas prices? No, they still really go on the road trip they intended to, but they might choose to eat at a cheaper restaurant. They might choose to stay at a cheaper hotel. They might uh, not spend as many days at Disneyland as they planned on it. They still drive, and they still drive about the same, but they make other behavioral choices. We're going to see that throughout 2022. I think the open question is, will high, high prices reduce demand? Uh, if it does, that could lead prices to fall. We've seen some of that. Um, but there's still a ton of pent-up demand to get out and to do things. COVID restrictions are lifting. Folks have returned to their offices. Many uh, have, at least. So uh, we're, we're just not seeing prices yet have a downward impact on demand. But Coloradans have told us this will someday. I'm speaking to Skylar McKinley. He's the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA Colorado. You were already just into a little prediction of uh, some of the prices that we can expect over the next few months is that a factor of where you uh, your oil analysts are, are saying that gas prices could go based on 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 what just a, a feeling or or how the war might go or or just how people might be affected by uh, the current prices that they are now yeah so things have stabilized uh, really the the supply side of the thing has stabilized for now. But it depends on truly what happens with the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, if that conflict were to expand, things would go completely haywire. It has currently adjusted to the fact that Russia's energy experts or uh, exports rather are persona non grata uh, within the United States and for most of the globe. Uh, but we just know that we already had choked supply. Um, there was just not a ton of production these past couple of years because remember, the entire oil and gas industry shut down when COVID hit did not rebuild back away. Prices were already going to be high for 2022. They were already going to be higher than 2021. And then you added Russia to the mix. So when we're looking and, and talking regularly about seeing gas prices over $4 per gallon for the summer, uh, it is largely, yep, that economic analysis where things were high and then add more uncertainty to the mix. And, and by the way, I, you know, in addition to this conflict in Ukraine, what I have my eye on for later in the year is going to be the hurricane season. 
um, given that a lot of our refining capability is in the Gulf. So um, right now, prices are high because it's just expensive to buy raw crude oil. But if there's anything that happens globally with refinery uh, capacity, that uniquely sends prices upward. And, and I don't think a lot of people yet are talking about the end of the war or conflict or however it's it's going to be resolved. Let's say Russia takes over Ukraine or let's say Ukraine just keeps dragging this thing uh, out and, and they they make advances and, and start pushing the Russians back. The sanctions either way, even let's say Russia takes over or, or Russia doesn't. Those sanctions from the United States and the rest of the world countries could be in place for not just the next weeks or months. It could be years, right? That's very likely, if not certain. It's going to be years before people feel comfortable buying Russian oil again. Uh, that's the bad news, of course, when it comes to prices being high, because essentially you've taken oil out of the market. There's some good news on the horizon you know, United States producers are now increasingly looking at bringing production back to where it was in 2019. It does take time. Um, we probably won't see any savings from increased domestic production until uh, late 2022, early 2023. Uh, but there's also some reasons to be hopeful internationally. I think the Russian conflict has made the United States more eager to pursue some sort of detente with Iran, which would free up Iranian exports onto the global marketplace. Um, we've seen similar conversations happening with Venezuela. Uh, as it happens, the United States gets most of its crude oil that we need that enters into production for you know what you buy at the pump from Canada and Mexico. I think you'll see increased production in both of those countries as well. So uh, Russian oil will not be filling up American cars for a good long while, um, you know, perhaps a generation, uh, but people will step into the void. It's just going to take a little time. One, one thing I think is worth seizing on here, we've gotten really good, and the, the United States led the way on this in, in producing oil. It's why briefly in 2020, we were a net exporter of crude. It's why we're the world's leading producer of refined products. Um, there will be continued and continual innovations in that space. Um, I think the, the Russia conflict has just sped those up. And so for price prediction in this fall, as you were talking about, typically we would see we'll get rid of the summer blends. We would see some prices fall. We're going to have fewer people going on summertime vacations because their kids are going back to school. So we'd see the price, the, the uh, demand decrease. So therefore prices would decrease. But as you were mentioning, maybe the hurricane season could keep those prices propped up artificially, maybe through the fall. And, and then what about the wintertime? Yeah. So, you know, typically prices in the wintertime even out to about where they were in January, February, and that usually kind of kicks in in October. Assuming no hurricanes, I think we're seeing, you know, a low point in 2022 of around 350, which is still, you know, higher than the peaks in 2019 uh, and 2020, of course, in 2021. Um, then the hurricane season could send them in the fall. You know, the hurricane season runs June through November, back up north of four dollars. But uh, you know, it's hard to predict anything with 100% certainty. But I can predict one thing, and it's uh, barring major COVID shutdowns again, barring a major significant new variant, I don't see the price of gas falling below $3 for this calendar year, and probably not for much of next calendar year either. Um, this is just a fact of life. And, and the unfortunate thing is, as much as it can be painful to pay a lot when you're filling up your car, this is going to have uh, continued influence on inflation and what you're paying for everything else. Um, so expect these to be some expensive years. I think we all hated the pandemic. I think it was very scary. I think nobody likes staying inside. But man, those pandemic prices <laughs> when gas dipped below two dollars 
Um, yeah. Hopefully we save some of that money for now, these next couple of years when it's going to be high. Yeah, that was remarkable. And then during those years, there were record numbers of people taking road trips. One, they were not sa- uh, feeling safe uh, getting on an airplane uh, or being around. They were all freaked out that they were going to be close to somebody on an airplane and breathing the same air that, they, <laughs> that they're breathing. Uh, I think some of that is relaxed. But over the last two years, we have seen record summer travel numbers, especially for road trips. So what what do all these gas higher gas prices mean to all the folks that were hitting the road and, and taking these road trips? Are we going to see record numbers again, or is that going to fall? I think because the COVID lockdowns continue to uh, decrease mask requirements, vaccination requirements, it's becoming as easy to travel in 2022 as it was in 2019. I still think we're going to see a lot of Americans traveling. Uh, paradoxically, even with high, high, high gas prices, um, I think we actually might see more folks opting to take road trips where they have more financial control over the decisions they make that can save them money. Um, and I say that because we know that airfare is going to go up as well. Uh, airfare also relies on airplanes, which rely on crude oil, same as your car, uh, and and consumers have less control when it comes to that. So uh, I think if prices stay this high as we enter the driving season for summer, it actually might mean more road trips and fewer flights um, at that price differential. But either way, Here's an example. Already for spring break travel, and I know you just got back from that, uh, for our booking data, we were 19% over when it came to hotels, car rentals, and airfare uh, over where we were in 2019. Uh, so we had increased over what was already a record year for 2022. Um, some of those gas price decisions haven't been factored into consumer behavior yet, but all signs point to this being a big year for travel. And Americans just sort of adjust their spending in order to accommodate that. So it might mean shorter road trips. Uh, it might mean staying at a three-star hotel instead of a four-star one. Uh, it might mean maybe camping or uh, you know staying at a, a, a KOA, a campground of America, instead of staying at a hotel. Uh, but I think folks are still going to travel, uh, which is going to send the price up. A- and remember, demand is really high right now. That's why prices are really high. In fact, the fall-off we saw last week in crude oil was because Chinese demand fell because they are entering another COVID lockdown period. So. Uh, generally, the fundamentals, health and economic, are pretty good in America that in, in, invite and impel people to travel. Uh, but all of that could also change on a dime. I mean, it feels like every day we're making world history <laughs> this <Yes>. year. <laughs> right. And, and you're right. I did just take a, uh, a trip to spring break and, and the airport was busy. Uh, you could really feel the increase not only at uh, at the airport, but also at the beach, because we were uh, just north of Savannah up in southern uh, South Carolina uh, at the beach. And so you could really feel the increase of people that were traveling uh, regionally. So there were a lot of license plates from Tennessee and from Virginia and from the Northeast, even from Florida, that were driving to uh, Hilton Head for, uh, for spring break for them. And, and so I, I couldn't tell you if any of those, because we, we had a rental car that was uh, registered in Illinois, so maybe there yeah. were some of those were uh, rental cars, but there were a lot of out-of-state license plates when we were away for spring break. Yep, yep, and I think we'll see a lot of those in Colorado, too, where folks just say, you know what, at least when I drive, I know how much I can spend on gas based off the routes I take, and I I just have more decisions I can make. Rental car costs continue to be high. Uh, Airfare is going to be high. Uh, at least your car is already paid for or on a payment system. Um, so all you have to factor in is the cost of gas. And, and the way I, I'm dealing with that right now is I try to fill up more often, uh, like <laughs> where I only use a quarter tank or a half a tank. And then it feels like it's not as uh, high priced because then I, <laughs> I am spending $25 and I go, oh, it's not that bad. But I only filled yeah. up a quarter of my tank. Yeah. And, <laughs> and by the way, that's like a, that's a best practice anyway. That's what we recommend is for safety. Always fill up as often as you can. And actually, right now is a good time to do that because prices will just continue to fall. 
but then level off and then fall. So um, you're you're insulating yourself from the 50 cent differential in, in pump prices that you see when you see volatility. All right. I'm speaking to Skylar McKinley. He's the regional director of public affairs for AAA Colorado. I want to transition now to this tra- uh, AAA research that says anti-distraction safety tech is easily defeated. And, and I thought it was really interesting how in the first sentence of the release, it's worded this way. It says, as automakers increasingly and misleadingly promise self-driving cars, they've also promised new technology that can detect when you're not paying enough attention. Well, how and why are automakers misleading us about self-driving cars? Yeah, and, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about because we see it all the time in car ads. There is a lot of great new technology in American automobiles that will make the road safer and starting to, at least when it comes to making it safer for drivers. Problem is some of that technology is branded as autopilot or full self-driving or pro-pilot. And the implication is, hey, you can just get in your car. It's going to drive itself. One automaker, I won't mention any names, consistently saying you don't have to worry about driving at all. Uh, but but we've done the research. We've taken these cars on test tracks. We've taken them and tested them on highways. Uh, there's no such thing on the market as a consumer automobile that can drive itself. There's not anything close to that on the market. This is a lot of marketing. It's a lot of PR. There's great safety tech that can make the task of driving a little bit more informed, that can give you more information so you can make safe decisions. But the idea that you can get in a car, take your hands off the wheel, uh, buckle up and get to your destination without being actively involved the entire time, that is a myth. And it's a dangerous myth. Uh, because folks are doing it. They, they are told their car can drive itself, um, and then they try to let it do that, and they end up in crashes. And you can see these videos all across YouTube. So uh, self-driving cars are coming, but they will take a generation to get here. They're not here yet, and they won't be overnight, because the tech just isn't that effective quite yet. I found in a rental car one time, it has that uh, lane assist feature that was mm-hmm. enabled, and and I, I don't have that normally on my older cars, and I, I frankly didn't care for it. And I and I found the button. It took me a minute to find the button to turn it off, and I turned it off just because I didn't like that. Uh, the car bumping me back if I was getting too close to what it thought was the, uh, was the line. Uh, are, are those some of the systems that the owners of these vehicles are disabling, and, and how are they going about doing it? So, so that's actually, that itself is what's called an automated driver assistant system. Um, what this new research looked into were systems that ensured that you don't over-rely on that technology. So there's tech in cars now that will uh, make sure you're paying attention to the road, uh, right? And if you're not paying attention to the road, we'll signal, hey, you actually have to drive this car. This comes because automakers realize they're getting in hot water by promising self-driving cars. So what this research looked into was, you know, how, how easy would it be for a driver to watch a video, to work, to sleep, to play video games, or just ignore um, their vehicle because they've got some of these systems enabled? What we found is that the anti-distraction safety tech does not really work, um, that there's camera-based systems and steering wheel-based pressure systems, but on average, drivers can be just disengaged the whole time, uh, and, and when you're driving at 65 miles per hour, you're driving a long distance. So even though you might get a ping after about six minutes of distraction, that's, you know, six miles of disengaged driving. Um, this is another area where the, the the automaker said, look, we have tech to make sure that drivers are paying attention and then drivers can easily just cheat it or just ignore it generally. It was back on episode 223 
that I had a powerful interview with Ken Snyder. And Ken is a vehicle technology expert and the executive director of the Shingo Institute at Utah State University. And Ken's adult daughter, Katie, was killed by a drunk driver. And he told me that the new transportation law that sent money all across the country to fix the infrastructure. As part of that law, there is supposed to be a new technology developed with the automakers that are, he thought, would help maybe even eliminate uh, people driving impaired by having those systems on the steering wheel, as you talked about, or being able to see your eyes and see if it's if you're bloodshot or you're not dist- if you're distracted or or what they it, it, or the the car thinks that you are impaired. Uh, I don't know if it can smell alcohol or or other issues, but it could basically biometrically determine that you are impaired and then either pull the car over to the side of the road and, and shut it off or, or at least slow you down. Uh, are those the kind of other systems that, that you're saying that maybe aren't as promised as, as we hope they would be? So we looked specifically at the distraction, are you paying attention feature and found that those systems don't quite work. The camera-based and uh, pressure-based. Of the two, the camera-based was a little bit harder to cheat than the steering wheel pressure-based. But both systems could be cheated, and both systems did not really require the driver to intervene. When it comes to impaired driving, um, there are ignition interlock systems. Those are actually incredibly effective because they just do require you know, a blow test. Um, those exist, of course, in some cars for folks who have had DUIs and are required as a condition of getting their license back to blow. That transportation law allows for ignition interlock systems on the basis of blow tests, which do work and are effective. Um, when it comes to Detecting impairment or, for example, drowsiness from these computer systems, based off how easily the distraction systems were defeated, um, I think that tech still has a way to go. I do know that the automakers are focused on this um, and that that as they're making technical gains, this is something that will improve. Insurance companies want to see it as well. But, you know, as of today, there's not a super genius computer that can detect when you're drunk, when you're too tired, or even when you're looking at your phone. And that's what our research uncovered. I also found this line in the press release interesting. It says, don't buy the hype, regardless of brand names or marketing claims, vehicles available today are not remotely capable of driving themselves. Yeah, so there's obviously some speculation here. Right now, self-driving cars rely on sensors on the vehicle um, controlling the vehicle, right? And we know that those aren't incredibly effective. Um, We've seen in our tests, they can be sidelined by rain, by bugs. Um, Oftentimes, they don't interpret pedestrians well. They don't interpret curves in the roadway well. They just don't work for most of the driving that we do. I think what's going to get us to a fully self-driving fleet in America will be when your car is able to communicate with every other car, is going to be able to communicate with the traffic system, is going to be able to communicate with the pedestrian's phone. And then when we have a really smart grid, um, the rollout of 5G has sort of enabled the first steps there, but we're looking at a massive billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment. And it's not going to be just cameras on cars, which is what we have now. Uh, and, and you know, there's a good question here when we talk about having a smart grid for transportation. Uh, we are seeing in the news uh, potential for Russian cyber attacks on America. You probably got an email from your bank telling you to watch out. Um, what happens when every piece of transportation infrastructure is connected to the internet uh, that is a, a major potential liability or safety hazard when it comes to, you know, cyber warfare. So, yeah, I, I, I think we're going to step an inch closer and closer and closer to self-driving vehicles. 
But by the time they're here, they're not going to look like what they have now. You probably won't ever own one of these things. Instead, it'll work more like an Uber or a Lyft. And I still think that's, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe in the next 30 years. But a lot has to happen between now and then. I'm speaking to the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA here in Colorado, Skylar McKinley. And it's funny, my, my daughters keep asking me, Daddy, are, are you going to be able to teach me to drive a car? They're, they're 12, they're 13 and 10. And I said, yes, you, you guys are going to be able to drive a car. I'm going to teach you how to drive a car, and it's going to be probably your kids that might not be able to drive a car, depending on when they have kids. Uh, but you would think that it, it's it's really weird to think of it that way, that, yeah, my, my daughters could be one of the last generations to drive their own car. Yep, I think that's right. And that's that's the exact right way to think about it. What is the good news here and what's exciting is that the cars your drivers will be driving for most of their lives are going to get smarter and smarter. There's going to be more resources available for them to be safe. That tech that right now is in its early phase will um, get more effective. And it'll very likely be that they're driving electric vehicles or or some other new technology. But they will be driving um, and they'll just be driving with more information uh, with each passing year. Um, but no, I, <laughs> they, they very much will not be able to just summon a car that, that takes them to, you know, work as if they're Batman or something. Oh, were there some of the automated systems that, uh, the AAA research, uh, liked? It, it, are, are there, are there systems that are, are good for us drivers right now? Yeah. Look, there's a lot of great systems on the market. Um, lane keep assist, automatic cruise control, automatic emergency braking, um, those all have safety improvements so long as you don't rely on them. Um, if you rely on them only to give you more information so that you know if you hear the ping, you need to break, um, as long as you stay engaged the whole time. We love this technology, um, we, and we've really stress-tested this technology and, and found like this works really well so long as the driver is driving. Um, when it comes to this anti-distraction driving, um, we did test the two kinds of systems that are out there. There's a steering wheel-based system and a driver-facing infrared camera system. The camera-based system is more effective than over-steering wheel monitoring, but they, it can still be misused. So uh, I think what we like best are the automakers who say, we have all of these tools on, our, on your car now. We want to bring you in and train you on how to use them. And that can take a couple hours at the dealer, and by no means are you required to do that. I know many automakers... Ford and Subaru have offered incentives for drivers to come in and get trained. That's what we want to see more of because these systems are great when you know what their limits are. And there are pretty significant limits. Yeah, I'm, I, I like driving. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I just like the feel of driving and be able to go when I want to go. And and because I, I, I saw that um, one of these uh, pilot episodes for this show, I think it's called Upload on uh, Amazon. And it was basically, they were all driving, it was supposed to be in the future, and, and the, the show doesn't really have anything to do with autonomous cars, except there was a, a scene where they, they were all getting into these cars, these autonomous cars, and uh, it just, they said, take me this place, and it just, it's like you're in a little single person uh, bus that's just taking you to wherever, at the speed limit, and making the right, uh, you know, three-point turns, and the, <laughs> the whole thing, but I, I, I like the feeling of driving sometimes, and, and not going um, you know, like everybody else. I love driving. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, and I will mourn the day when I'm not able to do that anymore. You know, what's funny though, is, is you hear a lot from, uh, the folks who are really bullish on automated vehicles saying this is going to completely reduce traffic because the cars are going to be so smart. There's not going to be slowdowns. Um, that might eventually be true, but also paradoxically, 
if we make driving so easy that you just hop in a car that takes you to your destination, you better believe everybody's just going to take that system. So this is the, the a really smart thing that I'm glad you mentioned is our entire infrastructure needs to change, not only technologically, but just in terms of how we think things through for us to have self-driving cars, because our roads were designed to, to have cars driven by humans. And so it's obviously that's not the right system for cars that are driving themselves. This is why it's going to take a generation, because to change, to go from a driver-based system to a car-based system is going to require thousands, millions, billions of changes across many, many years. And what's going to happen to all the old collectible cars? I, I love watching the Meekum Auto Show and, you know, the Barrett-Jackson uh, auctions, right? I mean, you, you, my, my dream was always to have a 1961 Corvette, the red one with a little white on the side of the door there, and, and have one of those cars. Uh, uh, look, if, if we're, everybody's driving electric and you can't find gasoline anywhere, and, and everybody's driving their own uh, uh, autonomous car where, where you can't drive a car yourself, uh, what, what are you going to do with all these old classic cars? It's going to be like Jay Leno, where you can, you can have them, but you have to find the fuel yourself, and you can only drive it on your own property. Yeah, that, that I mean, I, that probably is some version of the future we're looking at. Um, but the good news is it's a long way off. So, you no, know, that's, that's bad the, news. That's, that's not good news. That's bad news. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> here's the good news, then, is, is make sure your daughters savor those moments when, you know, get them, get them behind the wheel of a, a Corvette as soon as you can. Maybe I should, yeah. I should just go ahead and just splurge right now, sell everything I have, buy one of the cars, so I guess I won't be able to enjoy it in about 30 years. <laughs> and, and then enjoy paying all that you will for gas for those cars right, right. now, too. <laughs> exactly. That's going to be an interesting, as, as we're talking about it, it's, that's an interesting uh, transition, too, because eventually, uh, as the gasoline cars will be faded out with electric or hydrogen vehicles coming on market and those becoming the, the majority, you're going to see more charging stations or hydrogen stations. You'll see fewer gasoline, pure gasoline stations. That price will go up. It'll be more difficult to get those those uh, you know areas that, that uh, you can fill up your car. It'll be, that, that'll be an interesting transition to watch and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, it, we live in exciting times, um, and as much as I say that, you know, we're still a ways away from fully self-driving cars, everything gets better every year. Um, it just means there's a lot of rapid change that we have to deal with, so... All right. As I'm, speaking. I still drive a stick shift, and 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 I, you know, and I and I've always, I love driving a stick, but I don't know, I don't know if my next car is going to be able to have one. Well, you know, that's that's a millennial um, uh, stuff deterrent right there. Yeah, that's why I have it, and also none of my friends ever asked to borrow my car. <laughs> See, <laughs> perfect. It would be better if you had a pickup truck that was a right. uh, a stick shift, you, but then they would always ask you to move, right? To move, yeah. And then you would have to come with them. You couldn't just give them the truck. Yep, that's why I have a Jeep, and it only fits one passenger, and uh, it's not fuel efficient. Yeah, so. uh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> we're speaking with Skylar McKinley, the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA Colorado. All right, let's transition to the study that is titled Solving a Puzzle with Fewer Drivers on the Road During COVID. Why the Spike in Fatalities? My initial guess is speeding because there are fewer people on the road, so fewer officers enforcing, enforcing those speed limits and, and driving faster, maybe more recklessly. Is, is that correct? So that's one part of it for sure. We know that the number one thing that slows down cars or other cars. Um, so when nobody was out there driving, it was easy for everybody to be a lead foot because they had the roads themselves. That was a, a big issue. Uh, and it's also why we saw, you know, an increase to record levels in 2020 and 2021. Uh, we... We wanted to drill down into that a little further, though. 
Um, you know, why were there more crashes involving non-use of seatbelts? Why were there more crashes involving impairment? Why were there more red lights being run? Why were there more incidents of road rage? What we found out is that you're right. The vast majority of drivers drove less, but uh, there were there was one group that increased their driving. They were younger. They were disproportionately male. They were, in short, the riskiest driving group that we have on the roadways and way riskier than the average population. Increasingly, it was this most risky group that is also most likely to take um, stupid, reckless chances on the roadways, all driving and only driving among each other. And that was one reason we saw fatalities increase. That's really interesting. I, 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 I assume that increased alcohol... Uh, use because it, we we kept hearing about how people were using a lot more alcohol during the pandemic, uh, it, it, d- during the shutdowns, it would have led to more people driving impaired. But it seems that that might not be exactly the entire story there. You know, but I also think that's a smart observation. Is that all of our behaviors sort of changed as a function of the pandemic, and that led to a lot of weirdness. Um, so you certainly saw an increase in alcohol use, and maybe as a function of that, an increase um, in alcohol-impaired driving. Um, You also saw an increase in anxiety, which leads to drivers making less informed choices on the roads. I mean, everything just got really weird. Um, But there was certainly, this data shows what I've called the mad maxification of our roadways during the pandemic, where, you know, and and we saw a lot of this in the Denver area with street racers, where uh, folks who like, you know, high adrenaline lifestyles acted out on those lifestyles on our roadways because those were the only places they could go. You know, it was really interesting as I was talking to um, a officer with uh, one of the counties here uh, recently, and he was telling me that they are not doing any speed patrols or really even pulling people over for speeding on the interstates. He says he leaves that up to the state patrol because this is, let me go back to how this story started when I was talking to this guy. The other day, I was driving down the interstate, and here comes, I'm, I'm in the lane number two, so the, the one next to the left lane. Here comes somebody driving in a car, a regular old sedan, but the attempt tag was expired by seven months. Well, where's a cop when you need him? Boom! There was actually a Denver police officer right behind that driver. And I'm t- it's like, perfect, there's, there's going to be somebody pulled over for having an expired temp tag. And the driver pulls over to the right in front of me into the uh, second lane the cop just goes on past i'm thinking light him up light him up and the cop goes on past and then gets off of the exit two exits down not yeah. even and, and and so this and so this officer was telling me that for the most part unless it's a really egregious situation they are not if they're on the highway going to pull somebody over because of the danger that is posed to them for pulling somebody over and then having somebody else crash into them uh, just for somebody to get uh, written a ticket for a temp tag. Yeah, it, that's that's right. Um, and also there's jurisdictional issues where if cars are speeding too quick on the highway, soon they might be out of the, the jurisdiction where a local police officer can actually act on anything like this. When it comes to danger at the roadside, I mean, we know that Towing, for example, and our, our guides have to be on the side of the road, is 15 times more dangerous than every other private industry combined as a function of that. So uh, thank God for the state patrol, which does a really good job um, as best as it can along major corridors, but it, they can't catch every driver. Um, this is why I I love driving, and I'm, uh, I think, a competent driver. I would hope so. Uh, I 
drive very comfortably, usually at or five below the speed limit in the right lane. And that's how I always enjoy my driving. And luckily, I'm usually two lanes over from the maniacs. Um, <laughs> so all I have to watch out for are the people looking at their phones. But I think that goes to the point of there are people doing those more risky behaviors and driving faster. And that Mad Max effect that you were talking about is that if the enforcement is not happening, if you don't see the enforcement, if you're not like if, if ever, we've all seen it in the small town where you have a speed trap, where they have sometimes right. even a, a police officer that's sitting or even it's a dummy car, you, you know, it's there and you know, there's the risk is there. And so you naturally slow down. If that, if that risk of being pulled over does not exist, then you're more apt to uh, just keep on speeding. That's exactly right. And, and I think a related point is that like we, we aren't making um, or we haven't for the past 20 years made a lot of infrastructure investments to keep up with our population growth. Um, so it has become more dangerous than ever to, for police to be actively involved on the highways because you have more traffic than the system was built to accommodate. Now, there have been some transportation funding measures that might, uh, I think, increase safety, but we're going to take some time. Meanwhile, um, for many drivers driving 25, 30 over the speed limit, they, they aren't going to get caught. I saw that in, in this release that one of the recommendations from AAA is to obey speed limits. And, and you can tell people all you want to drive like you do, Skyler, and behave the, <laughs> and mind the speed limit or, or go a little bit under and drive in the right lane. But people are going to do what they think they can get away with. And right now, it's less enforcement. And it's uh, less risk of, of getting pulled over, and and it's and, and really in some of these instances, as I was I was thinking about this, talking about this on with on Twitter the other day with somebody, is that the uh, the risk of getting pulled over and then being fined for let's say an expired temp tag or even speeding is less than let's say getting your registration done, or it just really isn't that big of a deal for anybody anymore. Yeah, I and what's so frustrating about this behavioral change is like, look, there are some folks who just are going to dry like maniacs because that of the rush of adrenaline. And that's who we're really talking about when it comes to like the deterrent effect of a big ticket. A lot of drivers, though, just end up speeding casually um, or speeding because they're in a rush. Speeding doesn't really save you much time. Um, we know you'd have to travel like 100 miles to save five minutes if you're moving at 80 instead of 75. That light speeding is where you see majority of drivers doing it. Uh, bad actors are going to be bad actors no matter what. Uh, we know from our data, though, and, and this is, I think, the tragedy of it. Yeah, fatalities increased in 2019 and 2020. Sorry, fatalities increased over 2019 in 2020 and 2021. Um, the people who commonly were being killed were these people making these reckless choices. So, yeah, th if, if a t ticket isn't a deterrent effect, consider your life and what that's worth. But even still, speeders are going to speed. Uh, what about the idea of increased fines? To almost ridiculous levels, because if I'm paying $100 to fill up my tank of gas, a $100 speeding ticket doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. But what if it was a $5,000 speeding ticket? Maybe my thinking, if I got pulled over, would be a little bit different. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think that's a, a genius idea. I think there's not a lot of political will um, for people to raise prices on anything right now. So, you know, ultimately, that would probably have to be lawmakers increasing um, the the amount. One thing that, and and I know... People don't like it. Um, it's my number one thing that I get email complaints about is automated enforcement, speed cameras, red light cameras, and, and so on. It, they really work. Um, and they, they work without any sort of biased policing. It's are you speeding or aren't you? They catch drivers when they go through the intersections. 
I think some drivers perceive them as cash cows for municipalities, just like they would with increased tickets. So the conversation would be, hey, if we raise the price of speeding, whether through automated enforcement or through police enforcement, let's dedicate that to a traffic safety fund. So, that you know, we're not funding other services uh, from speed tickets, but rather we're, we're pouring that money back into making safer roadways. But those tickets aren't necessarily it, it's it's more of a it, it's when you get a ticket, it's a summons to court. Yep. When you get one of those photo tickets, it's just a fine. Uh, it, there's right. no there's no uh, law enforcement really behind it, even though the uh, law enforcement, the city say there is. But there really is not If you don't pay it, then they'll say, well, we're going to make the fine even larger. Well, go ahead, because unless you serve me. It's not enforceable. Yeah, and, and it's not ever enforceable with any points on your license, which we know is a deterrent. This, it's, it, it is frustrating. Um, the good news is speed cameras are kind of at their most effective where they save lives um, in slowing people down. And that's, that's within the urban environment. I know there's one right by the Denver 7 studios, for example. Um, that's where you want to see more of that. But relative to people actually choosing to make safer choices... That has to be a behavioral choice that we all need to get behind. And and I don't know if enforcement, however you conceive of it, is going to make it work. So when you have all these young kids who probably have the highest insurance rates already getting into these fatal crashes and doing these uh, behaviors that, that are more risky to everybody else on the road, how does it affect the insurance rates for not only them, for everybody? Yep, insurance rates are going up in Colorado because we have a rise in fatalities. Um, even though it's this specific risky population making risky choices, um, insurance premiums aren't just calculated off the only users in the pool to make risks. It's calculated off the entire risk pool. I, I also want to seize on that. You know, we saw an increase in fatalities as a function of these risky drivers. We also saw an increase in, in fender bender activity among the general population, in part because of rustiness when it came to getting back behind the wheel. But fender benders are a real reason we see uh, uh, insurance costs skyrocketing in Colorado relative to what we just talked about, which is there's all this cutting edge technology in your car now. It's usually at the extreme points of your vehicle. Uh, otherwise, in other words, the place is more, most likely to get damaged in a, a small crash. And then it costs two or three thousand dollars to fix or replace those sensors. Of course, that's factored into insurance, too. So ca- paradoxically, cars are getting safer. It's become um, less likely than ever if you're in a car to be struck and killed by a vehicle. Uh, but pedestrian and fatali- pedestrian and bicyclist fatalities are up. Um, there's just a lot of paradoxes in this world right now. Well, and if you look at any TV show, not only here in Colorado, but across the country, it was the same thing when I went to uh, Georgia and South Carolina. You see the billboards down there, too. Uh, these personal injury lawyers that say, you're in a wreck. I'll get you a nice, big, fat check. Yep. Yep, and I think those people have steady business yeah. <laughs> until we and, have. And they're also guards. hurting our rates. I mean, there. I mean, there's a reason that the insurance company has. They have to get their money back somehow. Exactly. So I'm speaking to Skylar McKinley, regional director of public affairs for AAA here in Colorado. Finally, all right, I have a few random questions for you. This will be like the the random uh, weird, not not lightning round. I can't say that, but it's just the weird random questions for you. Okay, uh, the first one: Will cruise lines you think ever eliminate the child vaccination requirement? Um, yeah, I think that's likely over time. Um, Cruising has gotten back to normal really quickly, and actually, uh, interest in cruises has has remained basically level among cruisers. So, I, I still think that's a return to normalcy period. Um, but cruise lines have not typically required young passengers be 
uh, or any passenger be vaccinated for the flu, I think eventually COVID becomes endemic enough that all of the the weirdness and the new regulations fade to the background. Well, there are a lot of people who, and I was down there in the Southeast, there are a lot of people down there that still are not vaccinated. They just have that political view that they don't want to get vaccinated. A lot of those folks did like to take cruises, but because they're not vaccinated, they're not being allowed on the ships right now. And I know Carnival is is one of those lines that, that really relies on those folks um, the, the, to go on their cruises. And, and I'm sure they're being hurt somewhat by the folks you know, whatever percentage, what 30% or so that, that are not being vaccinated. Yeah. Look, I think that we're at this new phase of the pandemic too. And this is really interesting. Um, people not getting vaccinated was, is a big reason the pandemic has persisted as long as it has. Um, but as COVID becomes more endemic and less severe, I think the choice to get, not get vaccinated presents less of a risk, um, for these cruise lines. Um, and, but then, so what'll happen is a new policy where they'll have a Buyer beware, uh, where they'll announce we're no longer requiring vaccinations. Um, if you do get a va- if you do catch COVID on this cruise ship, you indemnify us against all of that. I mean, it, we're in a brave new world of corporate policies when it comes to health and vaccinations. But I actually don't think that vaccination requirements are going to be here to stay. Um, even for folks who have gotten vaccinated, like me, um, I, there's a lot of folks who don't believe that things like this should be mandated in order to go to Disneyland or to travel. Yeah, I, I've been vaccinated as well. We were originally, for the spring break trip last week, going to go on a cruise, uh, but because of other issues uh, with the family, we didn't go, and they, they actually canceled that cruise, and my in-laws are now going to go on, take that uh, cruise money, that cruise credit, and go on a cruise here in May. So I'll uh, be able to report back to the folks about uh, how their experience was, uh, as they're going to take, uh, they're going to go on the Symphony of the Seas, the same one that I went on for my 50th, which was a fantastic cruise. Uh, at that point, I think it was the largest cruise ship in the world. It was a lot of fun. And you know what? One thing I'll add on that is that cruise ships learned a lot from COVID on how to just make cruising safer and a healthier experience. So I think this next generation of cruising um, is going to not be plagued by some of the issues that occasionally pop up in the news that weren't related to COVID about just health and safety on cruise ships. No industry made more changes more quickly and more effectively than cruising. It's why the CDC is now saying, you know what? Based off every, all the behavior we've seen from these cruise ships, we think it's safe to cruise. All right, so this is a whole different topic. Uh, Going to shift gears completely here. Uh, our Department of Transportation here in Colorado, CDOT, they have turned on this smart metering system that runs along part of one of our interstates, I-25, from Ridgegate Parkway all the way to University. And as part of that, they have two freeway-to-freeway metering signals. Usually they were just on the surface streets to get onto the highway. And the way they've changed it is to uh, really uh, monitor how much traffic is on the interstate so then they can hold traffic back instead of having it like every three seconds, the light goes green and then goes red and goes green, red, filtering the traffic on onto the highway, they now have it where it's it, it, you could be held longer onto these surface streets. Well, they also turned on these freeway-to-freeway freeway metering signals from C-470 and from I-225 to get on I-25. What is your opinion on uh, those freeway-to-freeway freeway, uh, metering signals? So there's good and bad here. Um, the good news is Colorado continues to grow. The bad is that that has strained our infrastructure. The good news is metering is very effective at preventing um, mass traffic uh, and and increasing the likelihood of consistent driver behavior, which creates pretty straight flowing highways. The problem is then from the environmental aspect where you have cars idling in the, idling in a highway system. So look, I think here's what I'll say, and this is a very politic answer of me, uh, <laughs> uh, is I I'm glad to see our DOT experimenting with different use cases 
Um, but I don't think this is going to be a silver bullet given the amount of frustration it might cause to drivers. Yeah, because you're, you're really getting better flow on one interstate at the cost and weight uh, uh, for the drivers on the other interstate. Yeah. I mean, I think every time, and I'm sure this will affect me when I'm stuck at one of these meters, um, you can't get frustrated at traffic because you are traffic, right? Um, and this is just one attempted solution to solve traffic. But Traffic can't be solved unless you have fewer people driving, and that's not going to be the case in a growing state like Colorado. You mentioned politics. You also help uh, AAA uh, over at the state capitol with uh, some you know, legislation that is floating around over there. What legislation are you folks looking at at the state capitol that's floating around over there this year? I think the most exciting thing we're looking at this year um, relates to having a, a primary anti-distracted driving law in Colorado. Um, one reason folks drive distracted is because they can't really be pulled over for driving distracted. A cop can sit next to a guy who's staring at his phone while he's driving, and so long as he doesn't make any other traffic mistakes, that, that individual can't be pulled over, which means everybody thinks they can drive distracted without any sort of impact. There's a lot of serious conversations about, about whether that should be a primary offense and whether that can make our roads safer, so we're excited by that. Uh, more broadly, also creating bicycle infrastructure under power line construction so that our bikes and pedestrians have safe places away from traffic where they're able to get to where they need to go. That also could could impact traffic. The more we make it desirable and safe to take alternative modes whenever you're able to, uh, the more that folks who only can drive or only want to drive um, can drive in a safe, consistent manner without things like metering. So those are two exciting bills. I think also we're kicking around some, there's conversations at least about um, increasing the amount of driver's ed that folks need to take in Colorado. That could make our roads safer. Uh, right now, we don't require much. You know, you have to do more hours to become a barber, for example, than you have to do to be a driver. I, I've always been thinking, and I, and I actually brought this up with some bike people that are, are you know, bike purists that only want to see people on bikes and walking and no cars across like a downtown urban area. But I've said to them, why not have just bike only areas? The Cherry Creek bike path is a perfect example. It's basically a, a highway for bicycles. Take it, take, take the risk for the bicyclist out of the traffic and, and let, let cars be with cars and let bikers be with bikers. And maybe you can have some mingling here and there, but, but give the bikes highways of their own yeah that's the only way we're going to solve it um you know we saw denver experiment with shared streets i think AAA is will push uh, for making some of those permanent so that there's high comfort areas um sometimes you're going to have bicyclists and, tra and and cars be in the same area in which case you know those do need to be high comfort bikeways but there are other choices we can make it's going to cost a lot more um where, where bikes have dedicated space and then and then that reduces the sort of conflict and and i think that's what we want generally because in Colorado, almost everybody has a car so that they can go to the high country. If you're able to comfortably and safely take your bike when you're going around town or even be between suburbs with use of transit, that's what we need. Um, and that probably will in increase traffic flow everywhere else by getting bicyclists in safe spaces and uh, also out of their cars. So that's something we've advocated for. This power line uh, trail bill uh, is a smart way to do it. If we're already building power lines, let's also build you know bike highways underneath them. Um, I Colorado has a long way to go in this regard. But we're blessed that we're a very active state with pretty good weather. And so folks are willing to have the conversation. But, you know, a good example is that South Broadway bike lane, um, which reduced a, a lane of traffic. Uh, I've ridden in that bike lane before on my bicycle. And it's scary still because cars don't know how to interact with it. And you're not really that far removed from traffic. 
dedicated spaces for cyclists uh, are what they deserve, just like cars have been given dedicated spaces for years. Yeah, I always thought it would have been smarter to move that bike lane instead of on a major road like Broadway that's designed to carry a lot, flow a lot of traffic from the downtown core to the interstate. Move it over a block or two into the Put neighborhood. Put it on Sherman. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, exactly. Put it on a, a less traveled roadway and take away some of the parking there and make that a dedicated only uh, bike lane and it would be safer for the bicyclists and safer for the drivers who are on Broadway. Well, and COVID was a big leap in that regard because the, the city of Denver finally tried that out with a dedicated shared streets. I think those will stick around. And I think that's a, a whole new way to think about these sorts of things um, is, is to make walkable infrastructure dedicated and not just second thought to cars. The legislature has changed your the requirements, and I think it's a, the federal requirements also have, have changed a bit uh, for truck drivers. So they want to get more truck drivers on the road, uh, but now there's going to be some new requirements to keep truck drivers from either having passengers or, uh, and, and I really think it's more about the bus drivers that uh, would carry passengers, but they have to go through now a new round of federal, uh, I, I guess, instruction to, to allow them to get on the road. Is, is that a good idea, a good place to start, or is it going to hinder uh, us getting more truckers on the road and therefore more delays and, and more bus driver delays? Because y- you've heard the bus driver issues, the shortages around our school systems, but also with the uh, infrastructure trying to get uh, the supply chain moving again. Yeah. Well, look, when it comes to buses, I think the more that we require highly qualified bus drivers, the more money they can earn. And the more money they can earn, the more bus drivers we can have. Also, the more effective they become at driving buses, which is really, really hard work. Um, As frustrated as I get by traffic, I can't imagine having a giant vehicle like a bus where I'm responsible for everybody's safety. Uh, For DOT requirements more generally um, for trucking, I think we're actually going to see trucking regulations ease a little bit. Just the cost of doing business across the board has increased. We rely on trucking for all of our goods and services. So, um, you know, there are really stringent hazmat requirements when it comes to your background uh, to be a, a, a DOT certified trucker. I think you might see some federal reconsideration um, of that, like that if, if you're qualified and competent, you can drive. But uh, everything changes so quick now, it's, it's hard to say. And, and by the way, you know, we saw... Uh, in Colorado with that tragedy on I-70, why it's important to have truckers who are very well trained, especially on emergency situations. All right, finally, Skylar McKinley of AAA Colorado. I want to know how your small mountain town bar is. I I read the uh, article, I think it was in the Steamboat Pilot. It it was really nice. Yeah, we're doing well. Um, Oak Creek is, uh, for those who don't know, a town of about 900, uh, 20 minutes south from Steamboat on hi- Highway 131. Business is doing w- well. We're a solid locals bar. I'll tell you, though, relative to everything we just talked about, here's what I'm not looking forward to. I-70 mudslides are about to start up again. <laughs> um, when there are I-70 mudslides, one of the main detours passes right through Oak Creek on Highway 31, which is also our main street. Then, of course, you get a bunch of angry highway drivers who want to drive 75 in a 25. So uh, this is my plea to everybody is that as mudslides affect our infrastructure this year, remember the communities you're driving through are communities and not just not just highways. Well, couldn't you like make an opportunity here and have like uh, uh, just a little table set up outside the bar and give like roadside drinks to the passengers in those cars? 
I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> Come I, on. I, I, given the given the length of those detours, every passenger becomes a driver at one point because people swap out. So uh, no, uh, I, I love when people come to the bar. I love it even more when they book a hotel room and enjoy Oak Creek for a night. Well, yeah. If you serve food at the bar, well, then maybe you can hand out sandwiches and then start. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. And uh, and I, you know, and I can tell you, some communities like Craig, which is in far northwest Colorado, have benefited a lot from the closures. But I think it's still a lot of frustrated drivers. So hey. Though, for those listening, that is probably the, my favorite stretch of highway in all of Colorado. I've driven most of Colorado's highways. One of the most beautiful stretches is Highway 131 uh, from Wolcott to Steamboat. So worth the drive because it takes you through the high country, it takes you through the plains, it takes you through the desert, uh, all adjacent to the flat tops. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it really is. It's really unique. And it's pretty isolated, too, along a long part of that roadway. So you won't see a whole lot of other people uh, unless there is a closure by 70. And you also won't see a whole lot of uh, people using their phones because they, they just won't work out there. They don't work out there, and you have to be mindful of uh, wildlife as it is. Exactly. Well, all right, Skyler. Skyler McKinley, the Regional Director of Public Affairs for AAA here in Colorado. Thank you so much for uh, all your expertise, uh, you know, going with all my crazy questions here at the end, and uh, I appreciate all, all your time here today. I better work pretty hard these next couple months so I can get invited back for a fifth time. Right, and then I'll have to get some kind of a jacket like they do on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, or exactly, or like the Masters. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It'll, it'll have to be something velvety, though, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Skylar, thanks again. Talk to you soon. All right, so there you go. <laughs> Skylar is the best. Uh, there there are some good PR people, and there are some really bad PR people, and and everybody should uh, take classes. Skylar should just give classes on how to do uh, public relations and know his craft uh, he, cause honestly that, that he, he should, he should do that right now. Uh, the state of the oil market and the travel market and the supermarket, uh, all hopefully will make sense to us now. Right. Uh, next week I am going to bring back, uh, the talking traffic segment and this time with, uh, maybe one of the most interesting traffic anchors around, definitely most unique traffic anchor in the EW scripts company, the company that owns, uh, Denver seven. Uh, it's Officer Robert Rodriguez, and he is the traffic anchor for KERO Television. It's our sister station there in Bakersfield, California. And you would think, what? why would somebody need traffic information in Bakersfield, California? Well, I guess we'll, that, that'll be one of my first questions for Officer Rodriguez. But his role as traffic anchor for KERO TV doesn't make him that interesting. Well, maybe a little bit. But he's also one of the public information officers for the California Highway Patrol. That makes him very interesting. And having a police officer doing traffic reports, I think, is is pretty neat. I wish I had access to uh, all that information that they do uh, when I'm doing my updates. It's it's sometimes a struggle to get that information. Uh, it should be pretty interesting. Anyway, that'll be coming up uh, for us next week. Uh, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. <laughs>